welcome back to Nudie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Tonight's classic is John Dixon Carr's The Hollow Man, published 1935. Carr was an American author famous for his detective fiction. At the same time, Dashiell Hammett was producing his Sam Spade detective fiction, like The Maltese Falcon, and Raymond Chandler was producing his Philip Marlowe detective works, like Farewell, My Lovely, Carr was producing his series of detective novels, featuring his characters Dr Gideon Fell and Sir Henry Merivale. Carr moved to England in the early 1930s and started his writing career there, so his characters are commonly English. And I am reading The Hollow Man, which features Dr Gideon Fell, a corpulent amateur sleuth from London. While Hammett and Chandler were making their fortunes in books and in Hollywood, Carr was in England producing hugely popular whodunit mysteries like The Hollow Man. And many of them, like The Hollow Man, are locked room mysteries. That is, a mystery that involves a crime committed in a locked room. The crime is usually a murder, and the circumstances seem impossible. No perpetrator is seen entering, or if seen, they have vanished into thin air. Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue published 1841, is the first locked room mystery. That Edgar, what a genius. And if you are interested in him, do check episode 13 of this pod when I read his first short story. The Hollow Man involves a home office, a secretary working outside the office who can see the door. He sees the door being opened and a gentleman visitor entering, and he sees the occupant walk forward to close the door. Later, he hears a gunshot and the occupant is dead. But there are no signs of the visitor anywhere. What could have happened? The Hollow Man is a rollicking read, but it is particularly famous for its chapter 17, when Dr Gideon Fell lectures his pals on the nature of locked room mysteries. And it's instructive and thoroughly charming writing, even though it is a kind of treatise on how to commit murder and get away with it. I am not trying to give any of you listeners any ideas. So, John Dixon Carr's The Hollow Man. Chapter 17. Let's begin. The coffee was on the table, the wine bottles were empty, cigars lighted. Hadley, Pettis, Rampole and Dr. Fell sat round the glow of a red-shaded table lamp in the vast, dusky dining room at Pettis' hotel. They had stayed on beyond most, and only a few people remained at other tables in that lazy, replete hour of a winter afternoon when the fire is most comfortable and snowflakes begin to sift past the windows. Under the dark gleam of armour and armorial bearings, Dr. Fell looked more than ever like a feudal baron. 
He glanced with contempt at the demitasse which he seemed in danger of swallowing cup and all. He made an expansive settling gesture with his cigar. He cleared his throat. I will now lecture, announced the doctor with amiable firmness, on the general mechanics and development of that situation which is known in detective fiction as the hermetically sealed chamber. Hadley groaned. Some other time, he suggested. We don't want to hear any lecture after this excellent lunch, and especially when there's work to be done. I will now lecture, said Dr. Fell, inexorably, on the general mechanics and development of the situation which is known in detective fiction as the hermetically sealed chamber. When I say that a story about a hermetically sealed chamber is more interesting than anything else in detective fiction, that's merely a prejudice. I like my murders to be frequent, gory and grotesque. I like some vividness of colour and imagination flashing out of my plot, since I cannot find a story enthralling solely on the grounds that it sounds as though it might really have happened. All these things, I admit, are happy, cheerful, rational prejudices, and entail no criticism of more tepid or able work. But this point must be made, because a few people who do not like the slightly lurid insist on treating their preferences as rules. They use, as a stamp of condemnation, the word improbable, and thereby they gull the unwary into their own belief that improbable simply means bad. A great part of our liking for detective fiction is based on a liking for improbability. When A is murdered and B and C are under strong suspicion, it is improbable that the innocent-looking D can be guilty. But he is. If G has a perfect alibi, sworn to at every point by every other letter in the alphabet, it is improbable that G can have committed the crime. But he has. When the detective picks up a fleck of coal dust at the seashore, it is improbable that such an insignificant thing can have any importance. But it will. When the cry of this sort of thing wouldn't happen goes up, when you complain about half-faced fiends and hooded phantoms and blonde hypnotic sirens, you are merely saying, I don't like this sort of story. That's fair enough. If you do not like it, you are howlingly right to say so. But when you twist this matter of taste into a rule for judging the merit or even the probability of the story, you are merely saying, this series of events couldn't happen because I shouldn't enjoy it if it did. What would seem to be the truth of the matter? We might test it out by taking the hermetically sealed chamber as an example. Most people, I am delighted to say, are fond of the locked room. But here's the damned rub. Even its friends are often dubious. I cheerfully admit that I frequently am. Why are we dubious when we hear the explanation of the locked room? Not because we are incredulous, but simply because, in some vague way, we are disappointed. Illusions are performed in real life. The very fact that they do happen and that the illusionist gets away with it seems to make the deception worse. When it occurs in a detective story, we call it incredible. When it happens in real life, and we are forced to credit it, 
we merely call the explanation disappointing. And the secret of both disappointments is the same. We expect too much. A man escapes from a locked room. Well, since apparently he has violated the laws of nature for our entertainment, then heaven knows he's entitled to violate the laws of probable behaviour. Call the result uninteresting if you like, or anything else that is a matter of personal taste, but be very careful about making the nonsensical statement that it is improbable or far-fetched. I am going to outline roughly some of the various means of committing murders in locked rooms under separate classifications. Now, here is your box with one door, one window and solid walls. In discussing ways of escaping when both door and window are sealed, I shall not mention the low and nowadays rather rare trick of having a secret passage to a locked room. This so puts the story beyond the pale that a self-respecting author scarcely needs even to mention that there is no such thing. We don't need to discuss minor variations of this outrage. The panel, which is only large enough to admit a hand, or a plugged hole in the ceiling through which a knife is dropped, the plug replaced undetectably, and the floor of the attic above sprayed with dust, so that no one seems to have walked there. This is only the same foul in miniature. The principle remains the same whether the secret opening is as small as a thimble or as big as a barn door. First, there is a crime committed in a hermetically sealed room, which really is hermetically sealed, and from which no murderer has escaped because no murderer was actually in the room. Explanations Number 1. It is not murder, but a series of coincidences ending in an accident which looks like murder. At an earlier time, before the room was locked, there has been a robbery, an attack, a wound, or a breaking of furniture, which suggests a murder struggle. Later, the victim is either accidentally killed or stunned in a locked room, and all these incidents are assumed to have taken place at the same time. In this case, the means of death is usually a crack on the head, presumably by a bludgeon, but really from some piece of furniture. It may be from the corner of a table or the sharp edge of a chair, but the most popular object is an iron fender. The murderous fender, by the way, has been killing people in a way that looks like murder ever since Sherlock Holmes' adventure with the crooked man. Explanation number two. It is murder but the victim is impelled to kill himself or crash into an accidental death. This may be by the effect of a haunted room, by suggestion, or more usually by a gas introduced from outside the room. This gas or poison makes the victim go berserk, smash up the room as though there has been a struggle, and die of a knife slash inflicted on himself. In other variations, he drives the spike of the chandelier through his head, is hanged on a loop of wire, or even strangles himself with his own hands. Explanation number three. It is murder by a mechanical device already planted in the room and hidden undetectably in some innocent-looking piece of furniture. It may be a trap set by somebody long dead and work either automatically or be set anew by the modern killer. 
It may be some fresh quirk of devilry from present-day science. We have, for instance, the gun mechanism concealed in the telephone receiver, which fires a bullet into the victim's head as he lifts the receiver. We have the pistol with the string to the trigger, which is pulled by the expansion of water as it freezes. We have the clock that fires a bullet when you wind it. And, clocks being popular, we have the ingenious grandfather clock, which sets ringing a hideously clanging bell on its top, so that when you reach up to shut off the din, your own touch releases a blade that slashes open your stomach. We have the weight that swings down from the ceiling, and the weight that crashes out on your skull from the high back of a chair. There is the bed that exhales a deadly gas when your body warms it. The poison needle that leaves no trace. You see, said Dr. Fell, stabbing out with his cigar at each point, when we become involved with these mechanical devices, we are rather in the sphere of the general impossible situation than the narrower one of the locked room. It would be possible to go on forever, even on mechanical devices for electrocuting people. A cord in front of a row of pictures is electrified. A chessboard is electrified. Even a glove is electrified. There is death in every article of furniture, including a tea urn. So we go on to explanation number four. It is suicide, which is intended to look like murder. A man stabs himself with an icicle. The icicle melts, and, no weapon being found in the locked room, murder is presumed. A man shoots himself with a gun fastened on the end of an elastic, the gun, as he releases it, being carried up out of sight into the chimney. Variations of this trick, not locked room affairs, have been the pistol with a string attached to a weight, which is whisked over the parapet of a bridge into the water after the shot and in the same style, the pistol jerked out of a window into a snowdrift. Explanation number five. It is murder, which derives its problem from illusion and impersonation. Thus, the victim, still thought to be alive, is already lying murdered inside the room, of which the door is under observation. The murderer either dressed as his victim or mistaken from behind for the victim, hurries in at the door. He whirls round, gets rid of his disguise and instantly comes out of the room as himself. The illusion is that he has merely passed the other man in coming out. In any event, he has an alibi, since when the body is discovered later, the murder is presumed to have taken place sometime after the impersonated victim entered the room. Explanation number six. It is a murder which, although committed by somebody outside the room at the time, nevertheless seems to have been committed by somebody who must have been inside. In explaining this, said Dr. Fell, breaking off, I will classify this type of murder under the general name of the long distance or icicle crime, since it's usually a variation of that principle. I've spoken of icicles. You understand what I mean. The door is locked, the window too small to admit a murderer, yet the victim has apparently been stabbed from inside the room and the weapon is missing. Well, the icicle has been fired as a bullet from outside. We will not discuss whether this is practical any more than we have discussed the mysterious gases previously mentioned, 
and it melts without a trace. To continue with regard to the icicle, its actual use has been attributed to the Medici. And in one of the admirable Fleming Stone stories, an epigram of Marshall is quoted to show that it had its deadly origin in Rome in the first century AD. But it illustrates what I mean in crimes committed inside a room by somebody who was outside. There are other methods. The victim may be stabbed by a thin sword-stick blade passed between the twinings of a summer house and withdrawn. Or he may be stabbed with a blade so thin that he does not know he is hurt at all and walks into another room before he suddenly collapses in death. Or he is lured into looking out of a window, inaccessible from below, yet from above... Our old friend Ice smashes down on his head, leaving him with a smashed skull, but no weapon, because the weapon has melted. Under this heading, although it might equally go well under head number three, we might list murders committed by means of poisonous snakes or insects. Snakes can be concealed not only in chests and safes, but also deftly hidden in flower pots, books, chandeliers and walking sticks. I even remember one cheerful little item in which the amber stem of a pipe, grotesquely carved as a scorpion, comes to life as a real scorpion as the victim is about to put it in his mouth. But for the greatest long-range murder ever committed in a locked room, gents, I commend to you one of the most brilliant short detective stories in the history of detective fiction. This is... Melville Davison posts the Doomdorf mystery. And the long-range assassin is the sun. The sun strikes through the window of the locked room, makes a burning glass of a bottle of Doomdorf's own raw white wood alcohol liquor on the table and ignites through it the percussion cap of a gun hanging on the wall so that the breast of the hated one is blown open as he lies in his bed. I'll round off this classification with the final heading. Explanation 7. This is the murder depending on the effect exactly the reverse of number 5. That is, the victim is presumed to be dead long before he actually is. The victim lies asleep, drugged but unharmed, in a locked room. Knockings on the door fail to rouse him. The murderer starts a foul play scare, forces the door, gets in ahead and kills by stabbing or throat cutting while suggesting to other watchers that they have seen something they have not seen. The honour of inventing this device belongs to Israel Zangwill and it has since been used in many forms. It has been done, usually by stabbing, on a ship, in a ruined house, in a conservatory, in an attic and even in the open air where the victim has first stumbled and stunned himself before the assassin bends over him. Steady on, wait a minute, interposed Hadley, pounding on the table for attention. Dr. Fell, the muscles of whose eloquence were oiling up in a satisfactory way, turned agreeably and beamed on him. Hadley went on. This may all be very well. You've dealt with all the locked room situations. All of them, snorted Dr. Fell, opening his eyes wide. Of course I haven't. That doesn't even deal comprehensively with the methods under that particular classification. It's only a rough, offhand outline. But I'll let it stand.
And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Dr Gideon Fell, cluing us all in on how to think about apparently impossible crimes committed in and around locked rooms. If you get a chance to read The Hollow Man, do. It's a charming work. And Chapter 17 is much longer than my short reading and contains some terrific writing about fiddling with locks and making doors and windows look as if they're locked when in reality they are not. Okay, join me next time when I jump to the United States, Derby Downs, Akron, Ohio to be precise, and the world of soapbox derby car racing and the scandal of 1973. No, it doesn't involve three-time soapbox derby champion Ronnie Beck from season three of The Simpsons, but it does involve some impressive and maybe not so impressive real-life characters. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nitty Reads. <laughs>